you have your Bibles or scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to Luke and chapter 22. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, we're going to be in verses 39 through 46 in our time this morning. You know, every week that I have the privilege to prepare and deliver sermons to you, I'm acutely aware of how inadequate I am for such a weighty task. It's a big task to preach the Word of God to the people of God. And I have yet to prepare one where I feel as though I could do this in a way that gives the text from the Word its proper due because of how limited, weak, and finite I am. Well, this week I felt that weightiness even more than usual. And I think you'll see why when we read it and as we work through it. I I am simply not up to the task uh, to give the text its due. Um, So if it's to have its effect, it it will have to work in spite of me. Uh, So we, we must look to the Lord to be the one who will cause us to feel its force in our hearts. Because I think you'll find that what this text is communicating is heavier than the whole world. Uh, You know, one of my heroes, Charles Spurgeon, who was, without a doubt, one of the greatest preachers in history. He said of this passage, here we come to the holy of holies of our Lord's life on earth. This is a mystery like that which Moses saw when the bush burned with fire and was not consumed. No man can rightly expound such a passage as this. It is a subject for prayerful, heartbroken meditation more than for human language. D.A. Carson said, as his death was unique, so also was his anguish, and our best response is hushed worship. William Barclay, surely this is a passage we must approach upon our knees. In light of the gravity of this text, we should approach it with a sense of trembling because nothing else seems appropriate. Spurgeon said also of this text, Jesus himself must give you access to the wonders of Gethsemane. As for me, I can but invite you to enter the garden, bidding you to put your shoes off from your feet for the place whereon we stand is holy ground. So let's do that as we read the text together. Luke 22, verses 39 through 46. God's word says, and he, Jesus, came out And went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you might not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, Not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise. And pray that you may not enter into temptation. Amen. This is God's word. May God write eternal truths on all of our hearts. Consider when we put the gospel accounts together of this scene, how they describe the Lord in the garden preparing for his approaching death, kneeling down, becoming prostrate, falling on his face, being in agony, his soul sorrowful, even to death, distressed, greatly troubled, sweat falling to the ground like great drops of blood, praying three times, petitioning the Father for another way. You know, history records many famous deaths, doesn't it? 
of heroes and leaders, and typically they are they have like a steely resolve about them, don't they? Socrates was condemned to drink hemlock as a means of his execution. And he could be seen hours before his death, surrounded by his followers, making quips as if he had not a care in the world. Many other heroes are shown as hot-blooded and fearless, right? Going down in a blaze of glory like Leonidas at the Battle of Thermopylae. Joachim Moreau was a marshal of France and king of Naples under Napoleon, and he was sentenced to be executed by his captors. Now, I want you to listen how he's described, how his execution is described. On the day of his death, he had a shock of his hair cut off and asked one of his officers to enclose it with a letter he had written to his wife, Napoleon's sister, and his children. Then Moreau took off his watch and he gave it to the officer as a gift. But before he parted with the watch, he removed from its lid a tiny carnelian on which he has carved a portrait of his wife. Moreau held his carnelian tightly in the palm of his hand as he followed the soldiers out of the courtyard where they were preparing to kill him. The sergeant of the firing squad offered Moreau a chair, but Moreau said he wanted to die standing up. The sergeant offered to cover up his eyes with a cloth, but Moreau said he wanted to die with his eyes open. I do have one request, he said. I have commanded many in my battles, and now I would like to give the word of command for the last time. The sergeant granted his wish. So Moreau then stood against the wall of the castle. He called out with a loud voice, Soldiers, form line. Six soldiers drew themselves up to within about ten feet of him. Prepare arms, present. Soldiers pointed their muskets at them. Aim at the heart, save the face, Moreau said with a little smile. And then, after he had held up his hand to look for the final time at the Cornelian showing the portrait of his wife, he issued his final command, fire. Why wasn't Jesus... Jesus like that before his death. Peer into the garden. Do you see Jesus standing tall with an unfeeling resignation to his fate? Why is he unmoved by the prospect of gruesome death like the others? Why is his death so different than the hundreds of stories of heroes who face death as if it were a small thing? Well, the short answer is simpler than you think. It's because he is facing something that no one had ever faced before and hasn't faced since. There are no comparisons we can make to what Jesus experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane. Find ourselves in verse 39 on the heels of Jesus spending one final evening with his disciples. And they were there in the upper room where they shared a Passover meal. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. The disciples argued about who was the greatest among them. Jesus predicts Peter's denial. He, he gives them one final warning about how the world will treat them from this point forward. And we're thus told that he set out for the Mount of Olives where he was going to pray as was his custom and the disciples went with him. The fact that he went to the same place that he usually did means that the betrayer Judas knows exactly where to lead the chief priests and the temple officers that night to arrest him. But Jesus has no fear of them and knows that what is going to take place is divine necessity. He has told his disciples over and over again that he must go to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be arrested and executed at the hands of sons of men. So he goes. They cross the Kidron Valley. They make it to the base of the Mount of Olives to the garden called Gethsemane. And Jesus tells his disciples, pray that you might not enter into temptation. At Jesus' most crucial hour, he still shows concern for his disciples, doesn't he? See, we typically picture Jesus' suffering as beginning with maybe his flogging, where he is beaten so severely that he cannot carry his own cross to the place of the skull. But that's not where his sufferings begin. They begin here, in this garden. And yet, as Jesus is about to stare into his dreadful destiny, he tells his disciples, you need to pray so that you will not enter into temptation. You need to pray. You need to cast yourself on God and depend on him for only he can give you the required strength that you will need to be faithful and to persevere. Now we know, of course, that the disciples cannot stay awake. 
that they failed to heed the warning Jesus gave in 2136 when he said, stay alert. They fall asleep not once, not twice, but three times according to the other gospel writers. And as Jesus is staring down the chasm of his grief, he continually gets up and he goes to check on his friends in order that they, he might exhort them to stay awake and to pray that they will be protected from unfaithfulness. Even while the Lamb of God is awaiting his slaughter, even as he is anguished, sorrowful, and troubled, he still has concern for his followers. But now let's not be too hard on the disciples, okay? Luke tells us why they were sleeping, doesn't he? It isn't simply that they love sleep more than they love Jesus. And while they fail to understand even now the immense gravity of this current situation, they fall asleep because, verse 45, sorrow. Have you ever been so full of sorrow that all you could do was sleep? Have you ever been so emotionally drained, full of grief, you couldn't muster up any energy but to do anything but close your eyes? So it was with the disciples. The day has taken its toll on them, and they sleep. And Jesus goes off a little way, and he begins to pray. Now, we've been told many times in Luke's gospel that Jesus prayed, haven't we? This is the first time we're told what Jesus prayed. The curtain is pulled back for us as we peer into Jesus' conversation with the Father as we are able to see in vivid color the humanity of Jesus. Here in the person of Jesus, we have the mystery of mysteries, don't we? He is both fully God and fully man. In God's economy, 100% God plus 100% man equals 100% God-man. It's simultaneously true that Jesus is creator God who has existed before time and holds all things together with a word of his power and that he's a man who can feel and be hurt and even die. Tom Schreiner says, we see in this passage that Jesus is also entirely human. He has the same desire to escape death that all human beings have. He too recognized that death is an enemy. He is not an automaton doing the will of the Father, but a flesh and blood man who does not want to experience suffering and pain. In this garden, his humanity is put on full display. He kneels down and he prays, Father, if you are willing, move this cup for me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus shows the kind of dependency on the Father that the disciples seem to lack. He casts himself fully on God and on God's might, and he prays that he might be strengthened for the task at hand. And if we knew the enormity of the task, we would understand why he says, if possible, remove this cup from me. In effect, Jesus is saying, if it is necessary, it is necessary, but if there is another way, could it be? Why does he say that? Why is he trembling in this garden? Why is he asking the Father if there's another way? Why is he sweating like great drops of blood on this cold night? It is because he is staring down for the first time the horrible prospect of what he is facing. And what is he facing? It's not merely the cross you understand. You make no mistake, being nailed to a cross, a horrible death as a human imagination could invent. It was a horrific thing to be nailed to a cross, but thousands of people have been nailed to a cross, right? Like there, there will even be people crucified at the same time that Jesus was. It was horrible, but it wasn't the prospect of the cross as such that made the Lord tremble in the garden. It was the cup. What is the cup that is before him? It is nothing less than the full wrath of God that sinners had stored up with their sin and rebellion. The cup was full to the brim of the wrath of God. And it was in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus is met with the full vision of what his taking on the cup in his person looks like. I mean, the Old Testament frequently used the imagery of the cup to speak of the judgment and the wrath of God. To drink the cup was to be the object of the fury of God because of the wickedness of people. The innocent one, the beloved son of God, the lamb without spot 
or blemish was staring down the barrel of God's wrath in the garden. He was seeing the horrors of sin's consequences, even though he had no sin. He was seeing and feeling the looming prospect of being cut off from the Father for the first time ever, and so he staggers. So he grieves. So he asks if there's another way. William Lane writes, the dreadful sorrow and anxiety then out of which the prayer for the passing of the cup springs is not an expression of fear before a dark destiny nor a shrinking from the prospect of physical suffering and death. It is rather the horror of the one who lives wholly for the Father at the prospect of the alienation from God, which is entailed in the judgment upon sin, which Jesus assumes. This horror thus anticipates the cry of dereliction. Jesus came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven open before him, and he staggered. And he staggered. We must not imagine that Jesus is unwilling for the task, nor that Jesus quivers simply at the prospect of death. If we miss out on the full nature of his atoning sacrifice in drinking the cup of God's holy wrath, we miss the entire point of the gospel. Dale Ralph Davis says it well when he says, Jesus is not quiver at death or for suffering is such he had long known and faced that he trembles before the kind of suffering required. This shows us the rightness of Jesus' request. It underscores the righteousness of Jesus and the perfection of his human nature. Jesus' request is not a blemish that mars his commitment to the work of the cross, rather it's a plea. His plea is the jewel of his character, his hesitation, a godly one. And why? Because the one who is truly righteous would see the prospect of the sins of the world being placed upon him as a horrible one. To be one who has enjoyed fellowship with God forever and ever and see that taking on this cup of wrath would be alienation for a time is almost too much to bear. Said Davis, to be cut off from the light of God's face be under some outpouring of his anger, that is the one thing the godly man does not want. But we don't like talk of wrath, do we? We don't like this idea God is a God who would pour forth judgment. Can't we just talk of God's love and mercy and grace? Must we speak of something so awful as wrath? We have made attempts in our society, in the church, to try to minimize or do away with God's wrath. We need a kinder and gentler God who would not be one to pour out his wrath, for we do not see ourselves as people who deserve anything but good things. And therein we have an explanation as to why the church in the West is such sorry shape. You know, a bit ago, we sang in Christ alone, which says, and on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. I wonder, did you sing that out from your heart? You know, attempts have been made to change that line to, till on the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Why? Because talk of wrath is a buzzkill. We're too awesome to be people who deserve divine wrath. You know, you're going to watch the Super Bowl today and you're going to see commercials that companies spent millions of dollars to air, and they're going to tell you that you deserve this, and you deserve that, and you should be pampered, and you should treat yourself, and you deserve sandy beach vacations, and that new car, and that overindulgence, and on and on and on and we go. And we'll be foolish to think that we do not buy into this idea that we are put-together people who deserve only good things. And this flows into our theology. To the point that we never think of ourselves as sinners who are objects of divine wrath. And that is why we aren't falling over ourselves with thankfulness and worship to God who would pour out his wrath on his perfect son in our place instead of us. That's why we're so lethargic and unmoved by the gospel. Who needs Wrath absorption. I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a pretty good gal. 
Jared Wilson tells of a time he finished speaking somewhere about the atonement. And some college student went up to him and said that he didn't like the idea that God would pour his wrath out on Jesus. He said, Christ was our substitute, sure, but he didn't receive the wrath of God. And Wilson replied, then who does? Wilson then said this, in pursuit of an atonement that is less bloody, less dark, less offensive, we may be stumbling on one that is less effectual, less powerful, and less, well, atoning. He says the devil loves this development because if he get us to stop thinking about God's wrath at the cross, he gets us to stop thinking about how our sin is an offense to God, which means he get us distracted from God's holiness and thus our need for salvation. The cross isn't only about wrath, of course, but we lose this vital aspect of Christ's atoning work. We lose the very heart of the good news. Indeed, this idea of a wrathless cross and of our not being people who stored up God's wrath with our wickedness and rebellion strikes me as very middle-class and American way of thinking. Go tell people who have suffered injustice and wicked treatment at the hands of evil people that God is a wrathless God. You know, tell, tell, tell them there's no justice in the end. Tell them the brutality that they faced, their cries for justice that were ignored were nothing, and that their brutalizers will get away with it now and forever because God is just love. Do you remember Miroslav Volf said? He said, here's my thesis, that the idea of a wrathless God would not wash in places around the world where there is so much suffering. He said, go deliver, go deliver a lecture in a war zone where your listeners have had their cities burned to the ground and plundered, unspeakable things done to their family, their fathers and brothers have been brutally killed, and tell them there's no judgment or wrath. He said, soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of that thesis. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocents, it will invariably die. God's love, don't you see, does not contradict his wrath because his wrath means he will not allow any wicked thing to ultimately go unpunished. We think for some reason that wrath is somehow opposed to love, but the love of God only makes sense. It doesn't make any sense without wrath. William Eisenhower said it this way, God reveals our predicament as he overcomes it. He wounds as he heals. God is the unseen claimant whose presence unseals the same breach it closes. Here we find an antidote to the modern tendency to think of God as every sinner's sentimental reassurance. God's love relieves the terror his anger elicits. This is why a sense of that anger, he says, is a necessary ingredient for spiritual renewal. To wake up in this particular sense means to see that God has come down to save us, not merely from ourselves or from each other or from the world. He has reached down in Jesus Christ to save us from himself. And how can we, you, truly appreciate and understand and be awestruck by what Jesus is going through in the garden and on the cross if you don't realize the cup that he is drinking is the cup of God's wrath, which invariably includes my wickedness, my rebellion, and my sin. Jesus the Christ the perfect God-man is staring full bore at the wrath of God even though he has never had one bad thought, not one bad deed, said one bad word. He is looking at the horror of sin and rebellion even though he never sinned nor rebelled. And God is saying, drink this cup dry and shouldn't we be flabbergasted at his love? What love is this? What love is this that would take on my selfishness and my pride and my self-aggrandizement and my wicked thoughts and my wicked deeds and my preoccupation with myself and my unforgiveness and my thumbing my nose at my creator and my attempts to be on the throne of God and my evil's words? What love is this? He died for that? No wrath? I deserve, because of my sin, to be the object of God's judgment. 
We're talking about owed. We're talking about rights. That's my right to be judged by a holy God. I deserve to be crushed under his boot of holy wrath and perfect judgment, and I deserve to be cast out into outer darkness. You know what we say? Jesus died for us. That's not strong enough, is it? Jesus didn't just die for us. He died instead of us. In place of us. Where we should be. Bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. A guilty, vile, helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. See, we say, I'm not guilty, Vaughn. I'm not vile. I wouldn't describe myself with that. I'm not helpless. We don't want to say those things of ourselves. We're going to call sin mistakes. We aren't vile. We aren't helpless. We aren't people in need of divine rescue. We aren't perfect, sure. But we try really hard. And we mean well. And we have good motives. And we're successful. We're put together. We mess up, yes, but we just need improvement. We just need to get better. We need a divine cheerleader. Not an atoning Christ who agonized over the punishment of our sins in the garden. But if we are not guilty, vile, and helpless, then the cross has nothing for us. The garden and the cross have nothing to say to people who fancy themselves as anything less than sinners in need of divine rescue, lest they perish and catch the wrath of God on themselves. You know, the reason some of you are unconverted is because you don't think of yourself as an object of wrath. You don't think you're a sinner. You don't think that you are wretched and lost and pitiable and blind and naked, naked, but Christ died for the wretched. If you don't think you're wretched, you remain unconverted. So the reason some of you are living lives that are unaffected by the gospel, even though you claim to know Jesus, who live for this world alone, is because you have forgotten who you were before Christ saved you. You forget that you are a sinner in need of radical, undeserved grace. In our affluent context of cultural Christianity, we have no interest in a wrath-absorbing Christ because we aren't so bad. And sin isn't so bad. And mercy is expected. And grace is deserved. We have an intellectual grasp of these truths, but not in the heart. And we haven't been touched by them. If we had, our lives would look different, wouldn't they? Wasn't it John Piper who said... My sense is that in the 21st century church, we are more likely to feel God's mercy as a presumed right rather than a mind-blowing surprise. Why aren't you falling over yourself at the prospect of a wrath-absorbing Christ crucified on a hill for all to see, naked, alone, and abandoned? Why are hearts unmoved by love like this? When I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in that on that cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Can you scarce take it in? Do you see your sin as so serious that it must be paid for? And that when Jesus was in the garden, he was staring directly at the punishment that our sins have stored up. They made him stagger in horror. Do you see sin as that serious? Or have you bought in the cultural lie that sin is not only normal, but should be pursued and celebrated? Because you ought to follow your desires and your lusts and listen to your fallen heart more than the one who created you. David said, this, this quote made me very uncomfortable, so I want to invite you into my misery. David said how solemn it is to think that the trembling and stainless soul of Jesus is to be cast into the outer darkness for me who can barely muster mild disgust over my sin. Is that not a sobering thought? Jesus looks at the cup and cries out, Father, there's another way? Let me do that. 
and sweat and agony and blood drops from his perfect brow, the just deserts of our sin filled that cup. This is what cost, caused Christ's agony. Would we dare minimize sin? Would we dare consider ourselves anything but wretches if we are standing on our own record? Garrett Dawson said, we are used to being sinful, but Jesus would have shrunk in horror from the cup of heart venom, the soul slime of humanity he was asked to drink. While all his days he had lived for his father's will, now divine will demanded that he become what he and his father hated, sin itself. As Paul writes, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not that he became a sinner, He became sin. He knew no sin, but he became sin. What love is this? But see, he's the only one who could do it. He's the only one who could stand to drink the cup of God's wrath for the world. Only the perfect God-man could absorb such horror. R.C. Sproul said, use your imagination. Suppose it was you praying in the garden, and you faced what Jesus faced, this horrible cup. When I think of being in that situation, I think that if God asked me to put the rim of that cup up against my lip, not drink it, not swallow it, just touch it with my lip, that would be enough to experience a cosmic blast of wrath that would blast me to smithereens. I could not endure its touch, nor could you. It was not like he said, that, like God said, take this cup and put it against your lip. No. He did not even say, Jesus, I know how terrible this is, how frightened you must be, but son, this is your mission, this is your duty, and I have to ask you, as my beloved son, just take a little sip. No, that was not what the father was asking, but rather, Jesus, take this cup. Don't just sip it. Swallow it to its bitter dregs. Ingest it. Let it fill your stomach and then your soul. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is beginning to be crushed by the Father. Did Isaiah not prophesy this? Surely he has borne, what? Our griefs? Carried our sorrows? Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Because all we, like shepherd, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It's no coincidence, my friend, that Jesus is undergoing this agony in a place called Gethsemane. You know the name Gethsemane means olive press? In the midst of this orchard was a device used to squeeze the olives until they yielded the precious oil. The base of an olive press is a huge stone basin. An enormous millstone fits in it in this bowl. A system of ropes and wood poles allow the user to roll the stone around the basin. And when the great rock bowl gets filled with olives, the grinding stone is rolled over them, crushing the olives with such a weight that the oil seeps out. The meat and skins of the olives get truly pulverized to release every job. Jesus was beginning to experience the crushing of the millstone of our sin. He's in a place of the olive press because he's about to be crushed in like manner. He was going to be pressed down until his blood poured forth from his veins for you, for me. What love is this? Jesus stares at this crushing prospect. He staggers, and yet with this horrible prospect before him, Jesus' supreme desire is to do the Father's will. He asks, is there another way? And and Father says, in effect, there is no other way. So the Lord says, even in the sight of this cup, not my will, but yours be done. Darrell Bach says, He makes known the desire of his heart to God, but his primary concern is to accomplish God's will. Jesus shows us that his request is less significant than his desire to do God's will. And what was the Father's will? 
to crush him. Said Dawson again, the fate of the universe turned on this unbendable will of fidelity. We can imagine how the powers of sin and evil howled at Jesus' soul. The accumulated rebel shout of every human heart, me, my way, clamored for him to forget us and save himself. Yet Jesus silenced that roar with what might have been no more than a hoarse whisper. Nevertheless, the lone human voice of faithfulness reverberated through the cacophony of our rebellion all the way back to Eden. An infinite cost to himself, Jesus answered his father rightly for us. What love is this? That Jesus has for sinners. You and I, you know, we, we've not only heard stories about heroes dying heroic and unshakable deaths, we've heard story after story of people sacrificing themselves for their friends, haven't we? Dying heroic, self sacrificing death in wars and battles or acts of selflessness for innocent victim. We like that, don't we? The stories we do not hear is a hero dying for the villain. Who has heard of a story of a king of some realm dying in the place of those rebelling against his throne? When have you ever heard of some mass murderer being put on trial and the guilty verdict is rendered and then the judge comes off the bench and he takes off his robe and he goes to the execution room instead and the murderer goes free? That's what Jesus did, don't you see? Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it for crimes that I had done he groaned upon the tree? Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Why did the Father show the Son in the garden the horrors that he was about to face? Jonathan Edward asked that question, he answered it. It was so we could see Jesus go to the cross voluntarily, knowing full well that he was about to experience so that his love for us would be put on display even more. Edward said further, Christ was going to be cast into a dreadful furnace of wrath and it was not proper that he should plunge himself into it blindfolded as not knowing how dreadful the furnace was. Therefore, God brought him and set him before the mouth of the furnace that he might look in and stand and view its fierce raging flames that he might see where he was going and might voluntarily enter into it and bear it for sinners as knowing what it was. If Christ had not fully known before he took it, and drank it, it would not have been properly known his action as a human being. But when he took that cup, knowing what was in it, so was his love to us infinitely the more wonderful. And so was his obedience to God infinitely the more perfect. The Father showed the Son in the garden exactly what was going to come upon him as he hung on the cross. Not, not just the brutal death of being nailed to a tree, but taking on hell. Not just the piercing of the hands and feet inside, but the feeling of forsakenness. And friend, the prospect, the worst prospect of all, the worst thing that could happen to us is being forsaken of God. But it's what we deserve. And it's what the perfect Son of God took in our place. But that's only efficacious if you repent and give Him your allegiance. Jesus was shown all of that in the garden, and guess what? He went anyway. Why? Why have I been telling you of the horrors of the cup this whole time? Why am I telling you that you and I are wretched sinners who deserve hell? To bum you out? To make you self-hating? No, so that you could see the lengths at which Jesus was willing to go for you. See, the sin can't be anything less than cosmic treason if it took the condescending and humiliating, wrath-absorbing death of God in the flesh to atone for it. So you see that Jesus took on the cup of God's wrath to offer you the cup of blessing. To see that no suffering has ever been greater than what Christ endured, and he endured it for you. How then, how, how can we not be moved by these facts? 
how can we go on living for our own little kingdoms? How can we be so focused on ourselves and our comforts? How can we settle, settle for marginal Christianity? How can we put Jesus on the fringes and peripheries of our lives? How can we come in here every week and approach the King of glory with casualness and closed mouth when we should be singing his praises at the top of our lungs? How can we go on baking on our religiosity and record of deeds? How can we be anything but overwhelmed, knocked on our behinds, head over heels for Jesus? How? Don't you see him? Do you see him? You see him in the garden? Sweating when it's cold? Great drops of blood coming out of his pores? Agonizing? Sorrowful? He thinks he could die from the sorrow? Falling on his face? An angel's dispatched to strengthen him? And he stares into this barrel of God's wrath. He sees the forsaken niche which, which he must feel because of sin that will be placed upon him. He's greatly troubled. He's asking, is there another way? And the father says, there's no other way. And he says, then if it is your will, I will drink this cup to the dregs till every last drop is gone. We'd realize that and be unmoved. Our lives would be unaffected. We'd live for ourselves. Would you look at him? Would you see the Lord of glory and what he did to get to you? We're the reason he was on the tree. And look what he did to get to you, to bridge the gap between you and God. Would we ever be the same again after peering into this garden? You know, one of the most moving scenes in the Chronicles of Narnia, it happens in the very first book. The great lion Aslan has offered his life in exchange for this petulant schoolboy named Edmund who betrayed his siblings. Edmund is guilty as guilty could be. But Aslan has offered to be slaughtered in his stead. On the night before Aslan is to be slain at the stone table, the girls Lucy and Susan follow behind him, watching him, longing to comfort him, and they're filled with sadness. The lion allows the children to accompany him for a little while. And this is what Lewis writes. He said, forward they went again, and one of the girls walked on each side of the lion. But how slowly he walked. And his great royal head drooped so that his nose nearly touched the grass. Presently, he stumbled and gave a low moan. Aslan, dear Aslan, said Lucy, what's wrong? Can't you tell us? Are you ill, dear Aslan, asked Susan. No, said Aslan, I am sad and lonely. Lay your hands on my mane so that I can feel you are there and let us walk. And so the girls did what they would never dare do without his permission, but, but that what they had longed to do ever since they first saw him, they buried their cold hands in the beautiful sea of fur and stroked it and so doing walked with him. Said Dawson, the Messiah, the anointed one, went to the olive press to be squeezed under the great stone of the world's sin. He went to unravel the fundamental error in the human heart. In this stage of his descent, he fell on his face in agony of realization, experiencing his father's repulsion to sin in the Garden of Gethsemane, the place of soul crushing, with his father's presence receding and his own disciples fleeing. Jesus said, nevertheless, your will be done. He willingly entered being crushed under the weight of the world. It seems, doesn't it? that all of redemptive history is a story of two gardens. In Eden, Adam, the representative for humanity, said to God, in effect, not yours, but my will be done. In Gethsemane, the representative of a new humanity, Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. 
where Adam failed in a paradise garden, Jesus obeyed in a dark garden where Adam plunged the world into darkness, Jesus entered into darkness so that he could offer light to wayward man. A.W. Pink put it better than I could. He said, in Eden, all was delightful. In Gethsemane, all was terrible. In Eden, Adam and Eve parlayed with Satan. In Gethsemane, the last Adam sought the face of his father. In Eden, Adam sinned. In Gethsemane, the Savior suffered. In Eden, Adam fell. In Gethsemane, the Redeemer conquered. The conflict in Eden took place by day. The conflict of Gethsemane was staged at night. In the one, Adam fell before Satan. In the other, the soldiers fell before Christ. In Eden, the race was lost. In Gethsemane, Christ announced, Of them whom you have given me, I have not lost one. In Eden, Adam took the fruit from Eve's hand. In Gethsemane, Christ received the cup from his father's hand. In Eden, Adam hid himself. In Gethsemane, Christ boldly showed himself. In Eden, God saw Adam. In Gethsemane, the last Adam sought God. From Eden, Adam was driven. From Gethsemane, Christ was led. In Eden, the sword was drawn. In Gethsemane, the sword was sheathed. Because of the first garden, we need the second because of the disobedience of the first Adam, we need the obedience of the second Adam. And here in the Garden of Gethsemane, as the Savior of the world agonizes over the wrath that he is to drink, his disciples sleep. It's as if the disciples here are in some sense representatives of humanity. <laughs> like representatives of you and I. We sleep when we should be awake. We slumber. We are droopy-eyed and yawning at our sin. We're missing the enormity of the moment like they did. Our Savior agonizes and sweats blood. We sleep and are prayerless. We presume to be courageous and are found to be abandoners. We want to be great in the way the world says we should be while missing that true greatness looks like Jesus obeying the Father even if it means he will suffer for others. And Jesus knew all that. He knew who they were. He knew who you were. He knew who I was and still drank the cup of wrath for us. This is how you're loved. This is how far Jesus would go to bring you near. Gavin Orland said, it might sound harsh to modern sensibilities to look at the bloodied body of Christ on the cross and say, I helped put him there. That is how God feels about my sin. To say this is to humble yourself under the offense of the gospel. It is the last surrender, the death of ego, the eye of the needle through the, which the camel of human pride must shrink and squeeze, but is also freedom because the person who could say, Jesus faced the wrath I deserve can also say, I now have the love and favor Jesus deserved. Only the person who submits the events of the gospel can be lifted up to see its glory. Behold the glory of the wrath-absorbing Christ. They peer into the garden, see his agony, stare at his person, and see that for sinners, the Holy One of God became sin so that we could be made righteous. You see what he did for you? See what he suffered? Would you sleep? Would you still choose your will over his? Jesus surrendered his life so you can live. Will you surrender your life for him? Jesus did the will of the Father even though it costs him dearly, will you do the will of Christ even if it costs you? Whatever it would cost you, I promise it was nothing compared to what it cost him to get to you. Jesus looked down the barrel of God's wrath and he saw there the most horrible sight and the worst of all prospects to feel forsaken of the Father, to be the only righteous one to ever live and yet absorb the punishment of hell for sinners, and it was truly a horrible sight. But it was the will of the Father to crush him. To make he who knew no sin become sin for sinners, so that if they repented and cast themselves on Christ, they would never be forsaken of God. So that they could draw near to him. So that they could live for a better country. 
so that when they go through sufferings in this life, they know that they have a high priest who can sympathize with their weakness. What more can I say? You must respond in heart. I can't cause this to be real to you. I, I, I can't get your heart, ra- heart racing at the beauty of the suffering Christ. I can't force him to be everything to you. I can't make you stagger. It doesn't matter how passionate I get up here. I can't make you stagger at the love and sacrifice of so great a savior. I can't make you take seriously sin or see yourself as someone deserving wrath. I can't make you respond. But I can invite you to peer into the garden and look and consider. I can point you to the second garden that makes up for the first. I can merely point you to see the beauty and glory of the agonizing Christ who loved you to the point of standing in your place. You have to respond yourself. I think you know you should. Every one of you. You know you must. So would you go to him and cast yourself upon him and never be the same again? Let me close with this from Spurgeon, and then we'll pray. The whole of the punishment of his people was distilled into one cup. No mortal lip might give it to so much a solitary sip. When he put it to his own lips, it was so bitter, he well nigh spurned it out. Let this cup pass from me. But his love for his people was so strong that he took the cup in both hands, and listen to this, And at one tremendous draft of love, he drank damnation dry for all his people. He drank it all. He endured all. He suffered all. So that now forever there are no flames of hell for them, no racks of torment. They have no eternal woes. Christ has suffered all. They ought to have suffered, and they must, they shall go free.